Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me in our virtual studio is Doug, Elliot, Tiffany, and Damien in the background. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to talk about gene editing or gene tech or GMO 2.0. There's a lot of different names for this type of technology that's basically been in the works probably for a lot longer than all of us are aware of, but at least since 2015. And uh, it's getting significant attention because it is not only moving from plants, but to animals and even humans. Mm. So it's kind of like letting a genie out of the bottle. Um, of course, there's a lot in science that has been written about it being this great revolutionary technology that's going to change the world and offer benefits, but there's also some serious concerns. So for those who don't know what genetic editing is or uh, sometimes referred to as CRISPR-Cas9 or just CRISPR technology, it's... Um, basically was uh, developed in 2013 and and then in 2015 one of the geneticists that created it came out uh, her name is Jennifer Dodna and she presented what is known as this CRISPR-Cas9 tech and basically it's an acronym for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> And it's, a, it's a, basically a gene editing platform uh, using bacterial, bacterially driven proteins. And that's where the Cas9 uh, portion of that whole saying is. Mm -hmm. So um, it's basically uh, used to target and break down DNA. And they claim that it's precise in snipping out unwanted elements. Mm -hmm. So this differs from like the traditional GMO type editing, like when we think of somebody or scientists engineering a tomato by inserting something from a different plant or an animal into it to keep the tomato from turning brown or whatever. So the CRISPR is different from that, right? And that they just insert or delete genes from whatever being or entity that they're fiddling with versus introducing new material from a different species? Yeah, that's why they're calling it GMO 2.0, because they're saying it's safer and more precise. Mm. And therein is the rub. <laughs> we do have a short little video for our viewers that may explain it better than I. I'm not a geneticist, a biologist, nor a chemist. So <laughs> um, it, you want to play that video, Damien, so our viewers can get an idea, of just a small idea of what this technology is? Yep. So CRISPR is basically uh, a group of molecules that can edit DNA. Um, you can basically fine-tune them to just go after any piece of DNA you want. Uh, they can cut that DNA and then you can actually insert a different piece of DNA in its place. Um, so this could allow you, for example, to fix a defective gene. Um, if somebody has cystic fibrosis, for example, in theory, you could use CRISPR to repair the gene that's faulty in them, and then they would not suffer from cystic fibrosis any longer. And also against things like cancer, because you can actually take people's own immune cells and edit their genes so that they can recognize and attack cancer cells. It's different from how GMOs are often created, where you're taking an existing gene from another species and you're inserting it into another species. In this case, you can just say, you know, this, this particular piece of DNA, I don't like it so much, I just want to change it a little bit. Uh, and you can make that precise change. Um, and CRISPR actually lets you make many, many, many different changes to an organism's DNA, so you can create a whole 
a whole suite of changes and potentially radically change that organism. Hmm. Well, that sounds yeah, so nice. That. <laughs> it sounds so sanitary. Yeah. Very simple. You just take out the part you don't like. I don't like this gene. I think I'm going to replace it with something else. My question is, how do they know so well what these individual alleles or whatever the smallest portion of a gene is, how do they even know with such certainty of what they are and where they are and how to find them and et cetera? I think that's one of the big issues with this mm -hmm. because they're still discovering all that kind of stuff. You know, and mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've read all kinds of different stuff about their, their, you know, they're learning this and they're learning that. And it seems like it's too early to be messing with it in this way. Like maybe in the lab, just like, okay, let's see what happens if we do this and kind mm -hmm. of play around with it a little bit and say, oh, look, this uh, goat grew legs coming out of its horn spot or something, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but it just seems like there is so much unknown at this point that um, they're, they're tinkering with individual genes because they think this gene does this, but they're finding out all the time that it's like, oh, this gene doesn't just do this. It also does this, this, and this, and it's responsible mm -hmm. for all these kind of downstream effects. So I think they're really playing with fire. Like, I think they don't know what they're doing. That's basically my view on the entire biotechnology industry. Like all the things that they are putting out there, they have no idea what they're doing. Yet, if you were one of these top genetic researchers, I think that probably one of the ways that they know as little as they do know, which is still more than the average person, I think one of those ways is by just getting in the lab and just tinkering with stuff. And I'm pretty sure that they were doing this well before 2015, once this CRISPR technology burst on the scene. So... Yeah, there's probably labs all over the world where there's just scientists just taking genes out and putting genes in and just experimenting and then discovering by accident something. Yeah. Yeah, it tends to be the case with these kinds of things is that they become a, a little bit trigger happy and overexcited to get it to the public. Mm -hmm. Now it's like the... <laughs> It's like vaccines, you know, it'll go through the minimum amount of trials, human trials, and then they'll just get it onto the market. And it's like, this seems to, this smells a bit like that, you know, it has that kind of taste to it. It's like, oh, okay. So we have this amazing new technology, which we don't really know much about, and we're still experimenting with, but it could cure cystic fibrosis. So very soon, yeah. we're going to get it on the market and it's going to cure all of these people. And it's like, well, when you present it like that, that's really cool. But as Doug said, when you like all of these genes and stuff, there's probably so many different functions of them that scientists don't even know yet. And also, um, we don't know the consequences of taking out a gene and then putting back in something else. Like if you put something else, is it is it just the gene which is... Um, fulfilling a function or is it that gene in conjunction with the entire system? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, is it the genes interaction with other things like other proteins and other kind of everything in the human body, like the whole information field, the system as a whole is like working in conjunction. And when you mess around with that real tight knit system, how do you know that the mechanistic, um, that, that, that just because it, it would make sense theoretically, how do you know that that's actually going to work in real life? Because real life isn't a lab experiment, right? And there's so there's just millions and trillions of different interactions in real life, which you can't control for when you can control for it in, in, a, in a lab, you know, in a Petri dish. And human beings aren't Petri dishes. So it seems that there's so many potential things that aren't, well, maybe they are being considered, but the way that he just put that, I mean, it would be great if you could help someone with cystic fibrosis, but mm. is it going to be as simple as just taking out a gene? Well, like with vaccines, I always dangle that carrot of curing some diseases that human beings suffer from. 
and like vaccines <laughs> and the disastrous repercussions that they've caused all over the world, it'll probably be the same thing with CRISPR technology. But, you know, saying that it'll cure a bunch of diseases is how they actually get their funding or they garner public support because people will basically do almost anything to be healthy. Mm. Or, if, you know, if you're suffering from some chronic disease, especially if it's a genetic disease and there's not much you can do for it, uh, you'll hold out hope for almost anything. Well, I think that's why they start with agriculture initially, so they can start tinkering. I mean, we've seen this with GMOs, you know, the, they were introduced in 1996, I believe, and, you know, that <clears throat> the whole kind of messy process of using a gene gun and blasting the genetics of the seed to fill it with Roundup or whatever. And now we're, you know, 25 years in and they're starting to find all of these issues with gut, you know, reactions and, um, you know, basic just wreaking havoc. And so I feel like at least in the agriculture world, that's why a lot of people are calling this uh, GMOs 2.0 because, because they're not using that kind of sloppy genetic modification they're claiming time and again, and you can read the articles, they keep saying it's precise, it's precise, it's precise. And just like what Elliot was suggesting, I mean, how do you know if you don't have 30 years of experience on, mm -hmm. on the effects? So in ag, they've started with like the apple. So they use that CRISPR-Cas9 technology to modify an apple so that it doesn't turn brown when you cut it open. And so you could package it and sell it and it would not, not turn brown. I mean, would you want to eat an apple that doesn't turn brown, but may still be going through the whole fermentation process? You just don't know it because you don't see it. Hmm. And they've done the same with mushrooms too. Um, and in the US, uh, people are in the biotech world are supporting it because they're saying it, it will not need to be labeled. And even uh, the USDA um, Department of Agriculture, they're basically saying that these, these uh, need no special regulations because they're, they haven't actually inserted anything. They've just removed those unwanted aspects, hmm. like the browning of fruits and vegetables. But that to me is a huge red flag. If anyone's had food poisoning, they know. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, so there's a picture of it, uh, Damien just put up, of a conventional apple and then the Arctic apple. What's so bad about the conventional apple? That looks perfectly fine to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a little brown apple that looks <laughs> fake and phony. <laughs> That's one thing that I've noticed about <clears throat> all this gene editing, genetic modification kind of stuff, is that the problems that they seem to be trying to solve are really, like, not problems. Mm -hmm. Or, like, they don't really seem like extreme problems to me. Like, the idea of, of exactly that browning of the apple. I mean, we're going to get into the animal stuff later on, but specifically if you just look at that, the whole apple turning brown thing, I mean, is that really, like, are people not buying apples because they turn brown? It's like I was going to buy an apple because I really want an apple right now, but it, it's going to turn brown. So People are outside of their grocery stores protesting brown apples. <laughs> exactly. Something has to be done. <laughs> My apple's turning brown. When, when will it end? <laughs> My suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, you just see it again and again, like all the different things that they're coming up with. A, a lot of times it's, it's kind of like, well, that, that's, not, that's not helpful. That's not really mm -hmm. doing anything that's, that's, you know, you're not going to save humanity by, by having a non-browning apple. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the, the things to look into about all this is who's funding this kind of research. And um, one of the biggest funders is DARPA. And for our listeners who may not know who they are, that's what the defense what does it stand for? The basically, it's um, American Defense. Defense. It stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they're up to some pretty scary stuff, actually. The whole gene drive thing. Just basically, I don't know a lot about it, but it's essentially like a technology that's able to not only put new genetic material in, but spread it throughout the population kind of as quickly as possible. So it's almost mm -hmm. like real-time modification of entire species as opposed to um, dealing with like kind of individuals. And they've got it at a point now where they say they can get genetic material to 99% of the population within 10 generations. That's yeah, really so they're actually not just modifying the individual, they're making sure their offspring has whatever yeah. mutation or change they initiated. Yeah. Which is scary. It's really scary, especially when you consider that it's DARPA doing it, and you know that they're not like, you know, trying to turn everybody into like X-Men or something like that. Like, you know that they're probably like looking at... Well, if we wanted to take out a country as quickly as possible and all the citizens of that country, how could we do it? Aha, mm -hmm. here's a way. Or something along those lines, you know, bio, <clears throat> some kind of some kind of plague or something like that. Like, I, you know that they're up to no good. Mm -hmm. Well, the scientists that actually um, helped develop that gene drive that you're talking about, Doug, he was a Harvard biologist named Kevin S. Valent, and he publicly warned that the development of gene editing in conjunction with these gene drives um, has alarming potential to go, go awry. And he notes how often CRISPR messes up and the likely the likelihood of uh, protective mutations arising, making even benign gene drives aggressive. And then he stresses just a few engineered organisms could irrevocably alter an entire ecosystem. Yeah, again, I just get the impression that they don't know what they're doing. It's like they don't know. No. They don't understand the consequences or they don't care. I mean, that's the other possibility too. Yeah. I mean, if you consider like all of the uh, medications that have been produced over the last 75 years or so, and not one of them is side effect free. Mm, yeah, yeah, you still have the power as a consumer to stop taking that medication. Let's say you had your genes altered in some way. You can't go back in and unalter that gene no. <laughs> and unalter the effects of this, that it's caused. No, it's true. And when you consider all the different things that can go wrong with CRISPR too, I mean, they keep on talking about how, oh, it's very precise. It's very accurate. Um, but the fact of the matter is that stuff goes wrong with it all the time. All kinds mm -hmm. of unintended things happen, um, you know, which is why there's still all this research happening on it and stuff. And you see all these papers with titles like Improving CRISPR-Cas9 Nuclease Specificity Using Truncated Guide RNAs. I just read that, by the way. I didn't just come up with that off the top of my head. And, but you know what I mean? Like they're saying, oh, improving CRISPR and what we can do and how we can keep on working it, um, you know, tweaks and things like that. So, I mean, obviously it's not perfect. And mm -hmm. there are lots of examples of where it has gone wrong. Um, I just lost the thing that I was going to talk about. Anyway, it goes it goes horribly wrong at points. Hmm. Well, I have a good kind of visual um, that I can share here. So before I do, there's a gentleman, Jonathan Lantham, and he's written extensively about CRISPR technology um, and the, the myths that go along with it. And, um, you know, the number one myth that he addresses is that uh, – current genome editing technologies are not error prone. And so that's a big myth. And he, he basically, you know, scientifically explains it. I won't go into the scientific explanation, but you can read about it. And, um, but he, the myth number two is that precision equals control. And um, he gives a really good description. He said, suppose a non-Chinese 
as a non-Chinese speaker, I were to precisely remove from a Chinese text one character, one line, or one page, I would have 100% precision, but zero control over the change in the meaning. Precision, therefore, is only as useful as the understanding that underlines it. And mm -hmm. surely no DNA biologist would propose we understand DNA, or why else are we studying it? Yeah. Good, good point. point. Yeah. That is a good point. And it's, it's good to have somebody actually admit, like, no, we don't have a perfect understanding of DNA. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's like somebody who, like, is has a little bit of um, experience with cars and then, like, lifts up the hood and starts yanking wires out and stuff like that and, like, <laughs> connecting tubes to different places and, like, uh, what happens if I put water in this thing or what happens if I put the gas in this other container instead of in the the gas tank you know it's just like they really have a very rudimentary understanding of this stuff and and they're just playing around they're playing god i think they're like you know they're on an ego trip you know yeah I, there was a research study they did on these genetically blind mice and they used the crispr 9 technology to cure the mice's mouses blindness <laughs> and they ran some tests afterward and after after the test or after the uh the procedure they found that along with the gene that they edited for the blindness there were a hundred or more than a hundred other deletions and insertions and more than 1500 nucleotide mutations wow so just one little change, they, I'm sure they thought they were being ultra precise, like, yay, this mouse can see now. And uh, yeah. of course, you know, like with these, all these studies or uh, articles and things that we read about these experiments, you only get a snapshot in time of what happened. There's never any follow up like of. Oh, Five months later, these mice went on a rampage in the lab and shot up all the scientists or something. Or, you know, you never hear any follow-up about what happened with these experiments. There's, it's just one little yeah. focus on that period of time, and that's all you get. Well, the other thing, in, in that same article that Erica was talking about um, by Jonathan Latham, um, the second point, the second myth that he addresses is that precision equals control. And so, and one, I think this is a really important point because he's, he's saying that even if this was very precise, the fact that they don't understand it is one of the things that, that is, is leading to all these other things. So like he gives, he gives an example. He says, suppose as a non-Chinese speaker, I were to precisely remove from a Chinese text, one character, one line, or one page. I would have 100% precision, but contr uh, zero control over the change in meaning. Precision, therefore, is only as useful as the understanding that underlies it. And surely, oh, you already read this, didn't you, Erica? Son of a, <laughs> sorry, guys. It's too bad we don't do any post-editing on that show. That's embarrassing. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I do think that's a really good example because right. for for those of us that are not like super science mind, you know, you can fall into the rabbit hole of this technology. And like Tiffany was saying, you could think, oh, well, you know, I could eliminate things in my family or we could do all these great things with it. But like to, to read that just little description helps you get an idea. Like, sure, you can be precise with removing stuff. But again, it's those unintended consequences that yeah. happen. Yeah. And exactly. if you're, you know, back to the agriculture thing, it's like, that's why I think they start with agriculture, especially in the U.S., because they can release it into the environment and basically find out what happens without mm -hmm. having to do safety testing they can just say oh it's totally safe mm -hmm. and and how how are they really going to know what the unintended consequences are you know yeah and i agree with you i don't have problem with guys tinkering in the lab but once you use people as guinea pigs yeah. then, then there's some problems for sure mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think you know the way that it gets sold to people is with all this amazing talk of the amazing things that they're going to be able to do, all these diseases they'll be able to eliminate. You know, 
end famine and uh, feed the entire world on these crops and things like that. But those promises just never come to pass. You know, it's mm-hmm. really most of the time the things that they're doing is um, making it so that they can patent something and benefit from it in some way. It's really just like, and I mean, that's just kind of the way science works, right? It's kind of like you you invest all this, this um, energy into getting something that's going to have a payout that you're going to get money off of, right? So you pursue a drug because the drug is going to eventually um, pay off. You're going to get like, it's going to be a blockbuster drug. Everybody's going to take it and you're going to get money from it. So that's where you invest. And it's the same thing with these um, genetically modified things. It's like, where is somewhere that in the future we can make money? So mm-hmm. they go into getting a crop and they say, well, if we make this drought-resistant rice or whatever, or corn, whatever the case may be, um, that's going to sell like gangbusters. So yes, let's invest in that. Um, but really, all that ends up coming out of that is stuff that kind of benefits these biotech companies, not the general consumer. So what crops do we have? Ones that produce poison or are resistant to poison. And there's, that's basically it. That's what we've got. Um, so I, I can see the same thing happening when it comes to like gene editing people. It's kind of like, what's really going to pay off here? And yeah, sure. Curing disease, that sort of thing, that'll help, but it'll probably be things like, you know, choosing your eye color, your kid's IQ, like, um, I don't know how attractive they are, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Not exactly things that are going to save the world. It could also be, uh, you know, Making super soldiers, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. You could have like, you know, uh, military babies, whereby they, you know, they're growing embryos and they've got like the top physical characteristics and everything. But even then, I mean, with gene editing, is it going to be possible to to make a human being which is not, uh, you know, which is invincible? I don't think so. I don't think that gene editing is capable of doing that because I think there is a finite capacity for for what human beings are capable of. You know, we came into this world the way that we are for certain reasons, I think, and there are kind of natural laws to that. Unless you want to get into, like, you know, robotic arms and stuff, mm-hmm. then you might be able to make, you know, some tall and muscular um military type kind of babies <laughs> well yeah adults I but think that, at the end of sorry. the day no go ahead no no finish your thought i was gonna say at the end of the day i mean it's it's not gonna change much i don't think and i think I, that's true i think that um what we know about the genome right now like what we know about genes um it's kind of like we know that they make proteins so, I mean, it's kind of like our view on what DNA is and what it can do is already pretty limited. And, I mean, there's only so much you can do by changing proteins around. So, I mean, yeah, you can find um, the genetic thing that might make somebody more predisposed to be taller or something like that. But it's not necessarily going to manifest in that way. And I guess what I'm saying is that it's kind of like changing the blueprint can only – like you're limited in how much that will actually change the final result if that makes sense. But I think that's why DARPA's involved. I think what you're talking about, Elliot, is what they want. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's why the main funder of it is the Pentagon, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of extreme biohackers out there who would wish to genetically alter themselves so they can become like supermen mm-hmm. and perhaps, you know, pass those traits off to their, onto their offspring. But I think just in general, the whole idea of genetically modifying or uh, bioengineering some things are, it's just extreme cases of wishful thinking. Like whether you want to become an X-Man or if you want to cure every disease known to man or make the perfect apple or whatever, all of it is wishful thinking. Oh my God, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the... I like meat, but I don't know if yeah. I could do that <laughs> so that's the gene edited cow right yeah <laughs> the hornless cattle holstein the hornless holstein well the thing about the holstein cattle is they can 
just do selective breeding to get rid of yeah. the horns on cattle. You don't have to actually go into the genetic blueprint and tinker with it in order to do that. Exactly. It's like why that's, that's, you know, again, coming back to the whole thing about, are they really doing anything that useful? I think yeah. that they just, they, they, they picked that maybe because they thought it would be easy or something. And then when really there's, there's zero demand for it. It's like, no, we can do it through breeding. There's these two. Glowing fish. <laughs> it's a cat somewhere as well. <laughs> huh. Wow. Or uh, muscular beagles. I guess beagles are used in a lot of labs for research. And somebody thought it would be a good idea to make her Herculean beagles with <laughs> a lot of muscle tone. That's crazy. But I guess, you know, um, there's a certain amount of animal experimentation that people will accept. And as long as the animal doesn't come out looking extremely deformed or ugly, mm. then people won't be up in arms. But then when you get to human beings, it's a different story. So I guess this would be a good time to talk about what's his name? He Jean Kui. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, Chinese researcher who thought it was a good idea to conduct a secret research experiment in which he altered the genetics of uh, a pregnant woman and she gave birth to twins. His whole idea was to make sure that the babies that were born were resistant to acquiring HIV. So in this case, the mother was HIV negative, the father was HIV positive. And I don't know if he knew this or he just failed to take it into account. Um, if you, if your father has HIV, the chances of him transmitting it to the child is very low versus if the mother has HIV. And also, um, I think the, uh, the gene that he was going for was at the CCR5. Uh, he said if he blocked that gene, then that will make the, the babies HIV resistant. But HIV is not only dependent on CCR5 activation. There's actually other genes that can cause, you know, susceptibility to HIV. So again, he was fighting against something that he didn't really need to. Yeah, again. It's just crazy. Like it, 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 again, it's, it's a, it's a situation where nobody's asking for this, you know, mm -hmm. especially like when he, he actually did this, like there was a lot of, um, blowback from the scientific community who were saying that, you know, what you've done is extremely irresponsible. I mean, there's so many phases that this should go through before you get to the point where you're doing it on babies or humans, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, Apparently, like uh, scientists were saying, it wasn't even good work. It was very sloppy. That the mm -hmm. um, the gene wasn't picked up in all the places that it should have been within um, the twins. I think one of them is um, heterozygous, and the other one is homozygous. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's just it seems like this guy again, just kind of on a power trip, um, wanted to be the first to do it, and just pushed it through regardless of the consequences. And again, I look for follow-up on those twin girls, Lulu, Lulu and Nana, I think, were their pseudonyms. And you can't find anything. The only follow-up I found on the story was that uh, the researcher ended up getting fired from his university post. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> well, he says he's going to be following them until they're 18. But the thing is, <laughs> like, it's, it, I mean, how do you even, like, how do you even know that it's successful? If these twins actually are resistant to HIV, they would then have to be like purposely have sex with somebody with HIV to prove that it actually worked. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like one of these experiments where you can't actually know that it worked. Um, right. There's no way to know. And if he's only following them till they're 18, it's kind of like, well, you know, I mean, I know kids, it's getting younger and younger at which they can start having sex, but. <laughs> I'm thinking in China, maybe 18 is, I don't know, actually. I don't know anything about China. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's more of a, an, an introducing 
the concept to people to see how they react to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I know in, in a previous show, we've talked about it. Like, why did he do it? And, you know, maybe it was completely intentional to kind of leak it and make him the, the guy that does it. And just to see the ethical concerns that came up or, you know what I mean? To just kind of, um, gauge the response that people Mm -hmm. have are people going to be outraged are they going to be interested you know um because you see them doing this with these animals i mean that damien showed the cow but they're also um genetically modifying goats so they can have more cashmere like hair uh you know um what's the one uh the muscly pigs you know, where they make a pig that's more muscly. And one of the things and I'm just going by memory of reading the article here was that they didn't bother to consider the fact that these super muscly pigs might not have the specific bone structure to carry that much weight or enough skin or, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. When they do this stuff on animals, you, you just you just know that humans are somewhere in the background. They're just they're just not talking about it. They're mm-hmm. you know, we can make like Elliot said, a super muscly soldier, you know what I mean? Like let's start with a pig because a, a pig is, you know, a good place to start, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but they don't take into consideration all the other elements that it would take to just keep that muscly pig alive. And, and I think in some of the research they've done, like 95% of them died anyway. Oh God. Well, there was a human being who actually died in one of these genetic trials. Uh, His name was Jesse Gelsinger. And this happened like back in 1999 or sometime. Uh, So I'm not sure exactly what kind of technology they were using at that time. But um, he had this uh, disorder called ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. Um, It's rare and it's some kind of um, disease where you can't eat high protein. So he was subsisting on a low protein diet and he was taking like 32 pills a day for medication. So uh, I think University of Pennsylvania researchers wanted to test this treatment they had for babies because this disorder can be fatal. So he volunteered for it. He was a teenager at the time. He knew that it didn't hold out any hope for him, but he thought, okay, it's for the baby, so I'll go ahead and do it. So they injected him with some corrected genes that were like covered in weakened cold virus, and he basically had multiple organ failure, and he died. Oh, really? Yeah. I've never heard of that before. That's funny. Yeah. Are those pictures real? Sorry to change. Damien just puts the pictures up, and that just doesn't look real. Go back to that. <laughs> yeah. That is that just yeah. looks like something out of some hellhound, a DARPA hellhound. Can you imagine that thing chasing you down the street in the future dystopia? <laughs> That's okay, because you'll be super muscly too. Oh. Yeah, you'll have super speed and you'll shoot lightning bolts out of your hands. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tiffany. I didn't mean to interrupt. I know. <laughs> anyway, well, that that was the story. So this this kid, you know, and his family, I'm sure, thought that he was doing something great for humanity and helping the babies. And he ended up dying. And we still don't have a cure for that carboxylase disorder. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. Well, I guess that's the question, right? Like, I don't know. You know, would would you do it, Gene? No. No. Okay. <laughs> maybe maybe put maybe put the <laughs> the question slightly differently. So, say you had a child who had a rare genetic condition, and they. Um, had some sort of uh, therapy with the CRISPR, like some some ability to kind of replace that gene and um, cure the disease. 
Well, I can, I can imagine the draw and, you know, no parent wants their child to suffer, but absolutely not. I would venture really? even to say, hell no. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Wow, you feel no. that strongly about it. Yes. That's interesting. See, I think... I, I, share, I share that sentiment. I do. Okay. Elliot, what do you think? Um, probably would agree with Erica and Tiff. Wow. You guys are all hardcore. See, I think, you go I, for I, think, it, Doug? I think that I probably would. I mean, given where the technology is right now, yeah, it's risky um, because, you know, it seems like what they've done, um, uh, the, the problems with CRISPR have not obviously not been worked out. I don't know if they ever will be worked out. It seems like despite the fact that they're saying it's quite precise, it really isn't. And it could lead to other downstream effects. But I think that if I had a child that was suffering, I would probably lean in the direction of let's give it a go. I don't know. Even, are you saying like in some future perfect world where the uh, the methods are perfected? Or are you saying now? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably, probably not. Probably not now, because I don't think. Yeah, the things obviously like haven't been perfected. <laughs> See, well, I mean, that I guess changes the whole question. <laughs> okay, okay. I was originally saying now, but now I'm changing it. But anyway. <laughs> Um, I guess the other thing is, is like, I, it does kind of get into a moral question with it, right? Like, it really is kind of like playing God. When you're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, traditional breeding um, methods with plants and with animals and things like that, um, there's clearly a line that's not being crossed there. Um, you're not going into the DNA and tinkering around and fiddling with things and making changes. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, there, there is that line. But if they actually get it perfected and they can do it, I I don't know. I think um, I think using it for the right reasons, like actually actually curing disease, might be. I might be for that. I would even go as far as to say I don't think that a human being could ever know everything there is to know about yeah. the human body. I think that you would have to be a God-level creator <laughs> in order to do that. So I'm not really holding out any hope that that kind of knowledge will ever be acquired. I mean, it'll probably be fun to see how much you can know, but I don't think that humans can actually know all of that. I'm okay with that, though. Now, okay, I've... I think I've I've been drawn along to Doug's way of thinking because <laughs> I've been thinking about this. Actually, I'd, I'd have stem cell therapy, right? Mm. And stem cell therapy is it's pretty crazy when you look at what they do. I mean, you're not you're not like changing the DNA, but you are kind of you're along the similar lines. You know, it's very much uh, tinkering with things that human beings have never really been able to do but it seems to work quite well right mm -hmm. so hmm. but i think that's much different though than actually going into the genome and hmm. messing around with the complete blueprint for life so i try stem cells but not gene therapy is it because of a fear of something going wrong or is it more that that's kind of like God's territory and you don't mess with that. Um, it's more of a fear of the unintended consequences. And secondarily, that's God's territory. <laughs> <laughs> but mostly it's just my own personal fear. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think like maybe with um, more research, if they actually do get a way that is actually precise and they know that when they want to tinker with this one gene, that's the only gene that's going to get tinkered with. And mm. they know that this one genetic mutation is what is causing some kind of disease or disorder that is causing a great deal of suffering. I'm okay with them doing that. That's a lot of ifs, <laughs> mind you. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that, I mean, it's kind of like my feelings on vaccines as well as like in principle, I'm not opposed to them. Right. It's just that the way that they are 
as they currently exist is a total shit show and yeah. they're, they're causing all kinds of problems. I guess I kind of feel the same way about this technology is that it's a mess right now and they don't know what they're doing and they're making all kinds of mistakes and yeah, but if they ever get to a point where it is actually um, possible to do this successfully, then yeah, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a problem with it. Yeah, it's one of those ideas that are great on paper, but in reality, it's crap. Mm-hmm. But I was just looking on Amazon. There is a DIY bacterial genome engineering CRISPR kit on sale for $170. <laughs> what does it do? Like, what's the idea? What You can edit your own genome? Is that what it is? Well, it sounds like it's for just bacteria. Oh. But... I don't know. If you get a mad enough scientist in a a lab, who knows what they can do with this certain bacteria and will they unleash it on the public? Who knows? But it's only $170 as a steal. So if anybody wants to experiment. <laughs> Is there any reviews? <laughs> yeah, there's three reviews and they're all five star. Wow. Science made easy. <laughs> Oh my god, it's like one of those little home science kits you would get when you were a kid. It came with like a little microscope and a bunch of different so chemicals. If we want to contribute our knowledge to the genetic engineering pool, I think we should start with that. Wow. That's um that's actually kind of terrifying when you think about it. It's like everybody's all up in arms about this guy editing babies, but it's like we're right around the corner from everybody doing that at home. Mm-hmm. Make sure that's why I think they, they let it come out. They wanted to see people's ideas on it. They wanted to see oh, and you know, and then this company yeah. just decided to sell their kid on Amazon. <laughs> they were waiting. They were waiting for the moment to release it. It could be that yeah, they were so. just trying to shift the Overton window a bit, you know, like actually shift mm-hmm. people's, not necessarily gauge the perception, but kind of like put it out there to make it like to start the process of be- people becoming more accepting of it. Well, if you can tinker around with DNA, even if it's just on bacteria in your basement for $170, just imagine what people like Bill Gates, who have billions of dollars, can do. And yeah. he actually is trying to do. Uh, he's really big on genetic engineering and genetically modified mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, so his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been funding a whole lot of DNA research. So one can only imagine what those people are up to with yeah. all that money behind them. Yeah, he's a strong supporter of it all, of CRISPR mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. Well, because he probably just looks at it like computer code. You know, <laughs> it's like he was able to build Windows, so he should be able to modify people. Build Windows and humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know he was... Oh, go on, Doug. No, I was just going to say for sure he's got like some X-Men like down in his basement or something like that, like genetically <laughs> modified people with superpowers. Allegedly has X-Men in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Well, he actually wrote in a magazine on the New York Council on Foreign Relations, shocking, uh, called Foreign Affairs, that uh, he argues that CRISPR and other gene editing techniques should be used globally to meet the growing demand for food and improve the disease prevention, particularly malaria, which is where, you know, Tiffany's GMO mosquitoes come in. <laughs> he says it would be a tragedy to pass up this opportunity. <laughs> um, and also, you know, he's, he's very involved with spreading GMO plants, but uh, into African agriculture. And guess who's right there up there with them, Monsanto and Bayer Ag. So these three are just, you know, they've financed gene editing projects. And I don't know, I just don't trust them. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. I don't trust them either. But, 
pro- problem is, is that like every, or it seems this way anyway, I could be wrong, but it seems that every species, every kind of different genre and family of animal in nature kind of operates in this um, symbiotic relationship. They all have their individual roles and that when you insert or remove one of these species or you alter one of these species, then that has downstream unforeseeable effects on the entire ecosystem, right? So if you take out the predators in an ecosystem, then actually you get an overgrowth of other species which would be eaten by the predators and then eventually everything dies because they it's like everything relies on everything else and with these gm mosquitoes like there are um scientists who have been criticizing this and basically have said that okay if you guys let these gm mosquitoes out in the wild and this is going to have like downstream effects on other mosquitoes so they're talking about how by reducing one mosquito species, what you're potentially going to be doing is increase the number of other species, which are actually disease-carrying species. So um, these specific ones, um, let me find it. Where is it? Basically, this article is talking about how um, there's a company, Oxitec, um, and... So they denied releasing millions of of genetically engineered a certain type of mosquito, which I can't pronounce the name of, (laughs) Aedes aegypti or something. Um, But the aim was suppressing wild mosquito numbers. Um, But unfortunately, what if if you were to do this, then they're basically saying that other species which carry things like dengue fever and Zika virus and um, something called chicken chikungunya mm-hmm. um that that this would this this is potentially going to happen um and so what you may find is that by releasing a bunch of these so-called benign species you may actually end up producing a situation which is 10 times worse than what we're currently in um and you can't foresee what is exactly going to happen uh, when you do something like that and it's completely irresponsible mm-hmm. Well, they said that they they did release a bunch of GM mosquitoes in the Cayman Islands. And they came out, this was in November 2018. They came out and said, oh, yeah, it didn't work. Like, that's what they were, they were, what they were trying to do did not work. And as far as I know, there wasn't a heck of a lot of information that actually went out. I mean, what didn't work and exactly. (laughs) How didn't it work? Yeah, how didn't it, didn't work, but... It, apparently they just were like, yeah, it didn't work, so we're not going to do it again. I yeah, didn't the uh, the governor of the Cayman Islands say, yeah, it didn't work, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, he was pretty tight-lipped about the whole thing, so it makes me wonder, like, what happened that yeah. we don't know about? It's those unintended consequences that they don't want to talk about, yeah. and they do it even when the population doesn't want them to do it. Like in Florida, they wanted to release those genetically modified mosquitoes and was over 140,000 people signed a petition against it. Nobody wants this stuff, but they keep pushing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants to get <laughs> dengue fever. That's their choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it just, it reminds me, it's just like the, the, the they don't have, like Elliot was saying, they don't have, a clear idea of what the consequences are of these actions. Like they, it's almost like they just kind of brainstorm these ideas and then they just kind of go with one. And it really, if you really kind of examine it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It reminds me of the guys who are, who are trying to dim the sun by like putting like aerosols (laughs) into the atmosphere to dim the sun to, to stop global warming. I mean, like how stupid is that? It's the stupidest Mm -hmm. thing I've ever heard. Like, but apparently they're they're actually like experimenting with it and trying to go ahead with it. It's it's the same kind of thing with all these these GMOs. Like oh, we'll just um, put these genetically modified mosquitoes out there, and that'll that'll take care of this problem. Like it's just I don't know. It's it's almost like they're they don't have the ability to think hard about this stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Another good example is um, this idea of Franken bees or this mm. um, genetically modified pollinators. Um, <clears throat> and I won't go super into the whole thing, but you know, I, I think everyone is kind of aware that the bees are dying off, whether it's colony collapse disorder or the varola mite, or you know, there's a this been a major concern about bee die-offs around the world, not just in the U.S. or the uh, Europe. But, uh, you know, the same kind of thing that you're saying, Doug, like, well, we'll just genetically modify the bee. So, or uh, use this gene drives or use these gene editing technology so that we can make a super bee that will mm -hmm. be resistant to neonicotides. <laughs> and it's, uh, I mean, and this was in the guardian, uh, recently it was called invasion of the Franken bee. And, um, you know, it's a pretty long article, but you know, they have apiary people that I think they're called apiaries, people that mm -hmm. are beekeepers. And then you have, um, you know, these scientists that are working on mapping the genome of a bee and it's one of the most studied insects in the whole insect kingdom. But, um, even the, the Baye was his name, B E Y E. The, the man that was working on the, um, research said, this is like the stupidest idea ever. The, uh, <laughs> the world doesn't need chemical resistant bees. He says it needs farming practices that don't harm us. So my point being and all that is that instead of genetically messing with a bee so it can tolerate pesticides, like deal with the issue and stop using all these terrible pesticides. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. it's <laughs> almost like, let's just introduce something that's even more crazy and yeah. could have major potential bow back when you consider they like they pollinate I, mean, I can't remember the the amount but it's like almost every food that you eat <laughs> sorry that was, my dog wasn't happy with that either but they're, they're uh it, it, i mean it's they're major pollinators they're they're responsible for just so much of as elliot was saying the whole foundation of life on the planet and people yeah. are able to eat you know what i mean well if you think that you have the power to alter the very foundation of life on the planet then uh screwing around with a few billion bees i mean that's pretty much nothing to you you got yeah. it all together you know what you're doing <laughs> it's like they're so resistant to kind of pull back and take a look at the direction that things are going in and saying, you know what, we need a course correction here. It's like they keep on sticking, trying to stick band-aids on things instead of actually like healing the problem. It's the same thing with the, um, the, the Enviro pig was another one. That was a, one of the first <laughs> experiments they did with uh, genetically modifying animals. And they were basically, so they looked at the problem of um, factory farms uh, the waste that comes out of that. There was too much, too much nitrogen in the, the fecal matter of the pigs. And that was causing all these like algae blooms and, and environmental problems to uh, the surrounding land. So instead of saying, okay, well, maybe factory farming is a bad idea um, because we've got all this pollution coming from it. They're like, I know, let's genetically modify the pigs so that they don't produce as much nitrogen. And that's what they, <laughs> that was their solution to the problem. It's kind of like, well, no, I mean, Factory farming is the problem. So let's move away from that. No, no, no. Don't worry. We're going to genetically modify our pigs so that the, it'll be perfect. There'll be no problems. Yeah. 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 I don't know. That's why back to what I support Tiffany in that thing with the, the I'm skeptical for sure, because it's like, oh, here's a solution. Here's a solution. And, and maybe it's not a solution. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Maybe I have to reconsider because, uh, I don't know, I still think, yeah, I, th I, I think that, well, I don't know. Maybe not. You're there's, still holding out hope, Doug. Well, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, with the factory farming example and the enviro pigs and with the bees and stuff like that, I can see that they, the folly of those answers, you know, that they mm -hmm. aren't really good answers. They're actually really terrible answers and they aren't really recognizing the nature of the problem. Whereas when you're talking about with a disease that is 
caused by a genetic mutation and you have ability to correct that mutation, maybe I'm just short-sighted and I don't see the problem and I would just be one of those scientists pushing through a, a non-solution that's going to cause more problems. But to me, it seems like that would, it seems like a different mm-hmm. thing to me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. But I think that with all of the uh, red flags and the warnings. Did we lose Tiff? We lose everybody? Who want to research this and they have the funding to do it are going to keep doing it. And, you know, we might end up with a million human monkey chimeras or... (laughs) monkeys with human brain matter that are smarter so they say but i think it's going to continue to go on and i don't know if there's much that we can do to stop it yeah yeah it might go underground and then ta-da you stumble upon an underground bunker holding five thousand genetically modified human beings yeah x-men yeah, and then after that, we'll be left to deal with the aftermath on how to deal with these beings. Yeah. Well, I can I can definitely see a future where this kind of stuff gets offered up as commercial things for people to either edit their own genome or edit their baby's genome mm-hmm. in some way, whether it just be kind of picking out traits that they want or... I mean, it'll probably come at first with, we will check to see if there's any genetic disorders um, that can be corrected, like diseases or things like that, and we'll correct those. But then it'll get to the point where it's kind of like you can choose hair color, eye color, uh, height, um, measurements, the whole bit. Yeah. I can see that future coming quite soon, actually, within my lifetime, I would expect. Well, especially not to go into a whole other random topic, but even just in the technology of in vitro fertilization and how it's developed over the last 10 years or so, you know, that, that people who were never, could never have a child now can have a child because of technology. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Well, I know we probably didn't get into all the different facets and it seems like by the week there's new animals and different editing that's coming out and uh, try and stay up to date on it as possible. But uh, I think on a little bit lighter note, we do have a pet health segment about pet hedgehogs. Hedgehogs. (laughs) That's the one. (laughs) Here we go. And welcome to the pet health segment of the Objective Health Program. This time I would like to share with you information about the cutest prickly creature, the hedgehog. The video offers advice if you would like to get a hedgehog as a pet, but it also contains a lot of other information you may find interesting. And there is actually hedgehog there walking around, so cuteness. And don't forget to stay until the end and see even more cuteness. Have a good one, everyone. Bye. Hedgehogs have been living in the wild in Africa for centuries, but only recently have been kept as pets. They can make terrific pets when cared for appropriately, and their popularity does appear to be increasing. Hedgehogs can be adorable, loving pets if they're handled often and made less fearful of people. They can learn to recognize and bond closely with their owners. But hedgehogs are not meant for everyone. Before you consider bringing a hedgehog home, there are several things about this unique creature you should be aware of. First, hedgehogs are covered in prickly quills. Like porcupines, the skin over the hedgehog's back is covered with prickly sharp spines that help protect them from predators. But unlike porcupines, however, hedgehogs' quills do not shoot out in defense. When handled, hedgehogs will twitch and jump so that the quills poke out. So handling a nervous hedgehog can be very tricky and may require holding it in a small towel until it relaxes. 
As with all other pets, hedgehog owners should be sure to thoroughly wash their hands after handling their pets, as all hedgehogs potentially carry salmonella bacteria that can cause illness in people. Second, hedgehogs curl up when they feel threatened. As a defense mechanism, hedgehogs are able to roll their bodies into tight balls, causing their spines to point outwards. Strong muscles over their backs contract forcibly to enable them to do this. It's nearly impossible to unfurl a hedgehog once it's curled up tightly. Hedgehogs must be handled often to get them to relax and uncurl. Unsocialized hedgehogs that are never handled, however, may remain nervous and tightly curled up all the time. Third, hedgehogs have a very unique way of exploring their environment called self-anointing. When a hedgehog encounters an object with a new scent, it will lick and bite the object and form a frothy spitball in its mouth containing that new scent. They then throw their heads back and spit this frothy saliva over their spines with their tongues to camouflage themselves with the new scent and to make themselves less obvious to predators. Fourth, hedgehogs are insectivores, not rodents. They're not strict insectivores, however, as they consume a variety of different types of food in the wild. Pet hedgehogs eat mealworms, crickets, earthworms, waxworms, and a larger portion of their diet made of commercially available pelleted formulas manufactured for hedgehogs. They can also eat a small amount of vegetables, fruit, and cooked meat. Given their desire to catch live prey, pet hedgehogs should not be given large numbers of insects, or they'll likely eat those to the exclusion of the other foods. Hedgehogs love to eat, and if they're housed in cages with little opportunity to get out and exercise, they are very likely to become obese. They should be given time out of their cages and encouraged to run on wheels to help them prevent weight gain. Finally, hedgehogs are nocturnal. Wild hedgehogs are active at night when their food is available. Pet hedgehogs have maintained this nocturnal lifestyle, sleeping much of the day and running in wheels at night. So if you're a light sleeper or you go to bed early or you stay out late, a hedgehog may not be the best pet for you. So, if you're thinking of having a hedgehog, realize that these little prickly pets need time, attention, and care to thrive and interact. <laughs> that was very cute. That was. I can't wait until we're genetically modifying our pets so that they're even more cute. Take out all their unwanted behaviors and human What brains. if you could genetically modify your pets to talk? There you go. I'm not I sure I want to hear what they say. I the birds, though. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to find the cuteness gene soon. Probably. <laughs> Yeah. And then you can have like everyone will have a cute pet. <laughs> yeah. Even like cute snakes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well thank you all for uh watching and listening. And uh please like our video and subscribe if you're interested in all the new topics that we come up with. And uh we hope to have uh, another interesting topic on our next show. And thank you to my co-hosts and Damien for doing all the uh, wonderful pictures that makes our conversation <laughs> lively. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so we'll see you all again. Have a great day. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. See you.